0: Poketov, Welcome back to another in our ongoing series of Shura Mandaf Yomi. We are now in the final set of Mishnayot of the fourth paragraph, of Masachet And we are dealing again with the issues of Ikar Ketubah. And as we saw in the last set of Mishnayot, uh, of what is called the Tznai Beitin, In other words, things that the, the Rabbanan established as being inherently part of the marital agreement so that if they are not written in the Ketubah, they're there anyways. And we're going to deal with three of them, but I'm only going to mention the latter two in passing because the Gemara that is part of this podcast does not deal with them at all. Uh in the next podcast, when we complete the parak, I'll go back to this Mishnah and analyze it, give it presented properly, and then we'll do the analysis in the Gemara. Uh so the Mishnah is on Daf Nun Bet Amudbet tavla so, if he did not write the following nusach, which should be understood to be an Ktubah, tuban, really should be written into the k'tubah, which is banim male children, the yahavu that you have with me, the husband is writing to this new wife. Inun yartun yatar im achuhon. They will inherit the money of your beyond the regular portion that they get with their brothers. If he did not write that, this is known as ktubat, but in Dichrin, we already mentioned it in the previous podcast, Chayav. Nonetheless, he is obligated to provide for that. Why? Shahu Tanai Beit Din. Let me clarify what this means right now, because this will be the focus of our analysis. And then we will quickly look at the last two Mishnayot, again, uh, only in a peremptory manner, and then we will take a look at them in greater detail later in the next podcast. Uh The issue is as follows. a uh, When a man dies, all of his property... Gets divided up among his children if he has sons. So the sons inherit all of the property. And as we've already been seeing in previous podcasts, and the previous parts of this parak, uh as far as how the money is distributed among the women, among the almanu uh, for the almanah for the daughters, if there are if there is a large estate, a small estate, makarkin, mitaltin, et etc., we've been dealing with those details. However, one thing that we only noted in passing when we mentioned barim dichrin, and now we'll see it fully. Is that the inheritance normally gets divided up equally between all of the sons, and if one of the sons is the bechor, he'll get a double portion. Here is the concern: a man's daughter is getting married. If he gives that daughter a large dowry, which she then brings into the marriage, nichse milug, which belong to the, which are then for use by the husband, and make of course, make her of course an attractive bride. But if the result of that is that that money, if the daughter, meaning if the wife, predeceases the husband, um will then be inherited by the, uh, by the husband, and then when the husband dies, that very large dowry is going to be equally divided up among all of the children that husband has, and let's say that his daughter only has one son, and in the meantime, uh, the daughter dies and he marries another woman and they have nine children. So, his grandchild is only going to get one-tenth of his daughter's dowry. He doesn't want that. So we, so the rabbis fix this takana called banim dichrin, which means that any amount that's in the ketubah itself will remain solely within that bloodline. Meaning, uh, wife A, uh, marries a man and they have three sons. Wife A dies. Wife B marries the man and they have three sons. B1, 2, and 3 uh b wife b dies wife c marries the husband and uh and they have three children and then the husband dies so there's an almana c and there are nine children a one two three b one two three c one two three. Now what happens is that first auba which is let's say worth a million dollars gets divided only among a one b and a one a two, and a three. B123, C123 don't get to touch it. Then B's ktuba, which is, let's say, worth $50, gets divided equally between B1, B2, and B3. So clearly, at that point, A1, A2, and A3 are getting far more than B1, B2, and B3. And as Rashi points out, you don't even need to have a scenario where the Ketubot are different in value. Let's say that each one of them came in with $100,000. But let's say that wife A had one son and wife B had 10 sons. Now, what would play out is if we didn't do this, we would mix them together and say there's 11 sons, and each one of them gets an equal part, which means that the A family is only getting a small portion of what they brought in, and the B family is getting a much larger portion. Uh, all told, they're getting almost a double portion. So therefore, they made a takana, ktubat parim dechrin, which means that ktubah of wife A goes only to sons A, 1, and 2, and 3, ktubah of wife B. Her dowry and niximilah go to sons B one, two, and three, and divided among them. And then the sons of C one, two, and three inherit their mother's tuba, and then the rest of the estate is divided equally among the sons. That's k'tubah banim d'ichrin. We will see the reasons for this in, as soon as we get to the Gemara. K'tov. The next piece is Mishnah Yud Aleph b'nan nukvan, meaning uh, daughter children or female children, the other thing that the man is supposed to write is, female children that you have with me, they will stay in my house, and they will be fed from my estate, until they are taken by men in marriage. If he doesn't write that, now this does not favor one family over the other, this just ensures that if the husband dies, and they have daughters together, and, uh, those daughters are not yet married, that the daughters will be able to live off the estate until such time comes that they get married. The last one is, At tehei yatva beveti, in chasai, megor beveti, chayav. That you, as a widow, will stay in my house and be fed by, for my estate, as long as you are an almanah, a widow, uh, your chayav should Again, if you didn't write that, it's included because it is t'nayvetin. So if, the, uh, orphans come, the heirs come and say, Our father never agreed to let this woman live in the house after he died. Beitin says, Yes, he did, because it's Snay Beitin. Now, Kacha She Kotvin. So in Yoshalayim, this is what they used to write. And in the Galil, they wrote the same way. But on Shey Yehuda, the rest of the southern district, used to write his father. They put the Q-stick in the hand of the yorshim. And they said, and the way that they wrote it was, as soon as the heirs want to pay off your ketubah, which means that in Yerushalayim and the Galil, it, the control was in the hands of the widow. And she could stay as long as she wanted to. If at some point she wanted to cash out, get her and leave, she could do so. In Yehuda, the, the uh, drivers were the Yoshim, where they could at any point say, we're willing to pay off your here it is, and leave, and she would have to leave. All right, now let's take a look again. We're not going to spend any time today on ktuvat bonan nukvan or on Armala armalta, but rather on bonim dichrin. So why is there such a takana? So that a man should write a nice-sized dowry for his daughter. Let's take a look at this. The Gemara asks, Is there such a thing? "The Amar Lirot The Torah said that a son inherits and a daughter does inherit. In other words, take a look at pasuk number one. That the Torah says in the Parish of Nachalot, brought as a sort of in response to the challenge of Benot uh, Zalphad, that a son inherits and a daughter does inherit. Meaning that this money that the father is signing over as a dowry to his daughter is money that he's effectively taking out of the estate. And now the Rabbanan by having Ktuat Barim dikhrin, are encouraging the man to write a larger dowry and saying don't worry about it, it will stay with your grandchildren because of Ketubah Barim dikhrin." So now, since when do you have something that Midah oraita? the Torah says that only the sons inherit. And the Rabbana come along and make a takana, that the daughter should inherit also. So the answer that Gemara gives is quite interesting. You know, the notion that a man should provide for his daughter in such a way is also doraita. Now, da'oraita here is being used in a somewhat flexible manner because the proof text is not from the Torah, but I'll explain after reading the text why it's called Tichtiv. Now, a little bit of historic context. Uh, it, uh, after the um, the exile of Yehoiachin in 597 BCE, most of the prophets who were in Tzidkiyahu, the puppet king's court, puppet king of Judea, uh, in his court, were advising him and advising all the people that very soon Egypt is going to rise up, is going to assist Jerusalem, is going to defeat Babylonia, and is going to allow all the captives to come back. And therefore, they sent the message, sit on your suitcases, basically. Yirmiyahu said, it's not the way it's going to be and don't trust Egypt, and accept the Babylonian yoke, etc. And one of the points he made was that the exile will last for several generations and settle in. And in a famous letter that Yumeahu wrote to the Gola, Yumiahu Chavtet, he writes, Go get married in In and words, settle down. Married, have sons, uvanot and daughters, and take wives for your sons. And give your daughters to men. Now, that's his advice. It Basically, the bottom line is to say, settle in, and you're going to have several generations there, but be aware that you're going to come back. Now, I understand how he says, take women for your sons. That's up to him to do, because he can make sure that um, that um his sons has have a nice k'tuba, and uh, he'll go find a nice wife for his son. Alabante me but since when does he have the wherewithal to to get somebody else to marry his daughter? The answer is Akamashbalan to Nilbishav and Nichav la'midi. So that teaches you that he should dress her up nicely and give her nice garments, and give her something uh, some other monies. Kh de Allah so that people will be very interested in marrying her Vatunasvila and then they'll come and marry her. So in other words, when Yirmiyahu gives advice that a man should, uh, that the men should marry off their sons and marry off their daughters, marrying off the daughters something that's not in your control. What does it mean? It means give all of this extra help to your daughter, this financial help to your daughter, so that she'll be able to be married. And here they see an allusion to the notion of nedunya. Now, when the Gemara says that this is daoraita, one could say, well, it's not daoraita; it's Yirmiyahu. But, uh, Doraita here does not mean it's a mitzvah Doraita. We see many, many examples of this, but rather we mean that it was a known concept and a known principle at the time of the Torah that the, that they simply in the context of, uh, of normal communication. It's being referred to as a known entity. You know, you, you take uh, wives for your sons, you take uh, husbands for your daughters. And of course, we all know what that means, which means at the time of the Torah, as this seems to be not, not something new, but at the time of the Torah and the time of the neviim this was something that was a common practice. Um, one could almost argue that even the approaches that say that Ketubah is the right, as we saw in the first parak, are relying on very much the same notion because when the Torah says, kumohar ha which is the source text for that, in the case of Mafata, the Torah is effectively saying, yeah, well, we all know what we give, we all know that, that there is such a thing as a payment to the family if a man marries a Batula, so that's what you pay here. So in other words, it's relying not on diktat, but rather on common custom. Okay. In any case, Viad kama, so the question is, how much, what's the max you should give your daughter? Uh, as far as uh, nidunya, one tenth of your of your estate, of your property. so now we're going to propose several challenges to the way barim dichrin works. So why don't we say that the that the barim dichrin should only inherit the dowry? In other words, that which was given by the father. But not that which is given by the husband. In other words, we know that the, that the sons, the Bonim Dichrin, are going to inherit their mother's ketubah, which includes, it includes the nichsemalog and all of the dowry, and it also includes the hundred or two hundred that the mother's ketubah, which is given by the, by the husband, not by the father, has also the tosefet that the husband adds in. Now, based on the reasoning that you just made, which is that it's all there to get the father to provide for his daughter, because So that he shouldn't be worried that it's going to go to the other sons. So it should be that the only part that the sons inherit independently of the entire pool of, of inheritance should be that which the father gave, it, not that the husband gave. So, so if that happens, the father is going to refuse to write because he's going to basically say, the husband's not providing anything special protection for my daughter. I'm not going to provide anything special for him. Because the dowry really is going to go to him first. So the only way to keep the father as an interested party is to have him say, you know what, all of the ketubah, meaning what the husband wrote, and because my daughter is so special, he wrote a nice ketubah and a big tosefet, and also the nice dowry that I wrote, that's all going to go to my grandchildren, and therefore I'll be comfortable writing such an amount. Good. So now let's put a nice twist on this. Let's say that the only time that Boim Dichin applies is when the father actually does write a nice dowry, but let's say if he doesn't, it shouldn't apply. So the answer is quite simple, Lo Plug Ramanan. When you make a law like this, you don't start distinguishing, because by the way, it's not a question of distinguishing between when he did give a dowry and didn't give a dowry. It's a question of how much of a dowry, was it a big dowry? So we, Lo Plug, we say that's the rule of k'tubat. Now, Bat Bena Banim Nami Terut, so now what you should have is that if the, the wife that we're talking about only has daughters or a daughter, she should also have Bechtouba the, because the same concern applies. Because after all, the guy has six sons, son A123 and son B123, and then he marries wife C, and wife C gives him a daughter. So now, the same concern should apply that father will not write a nice dowry for his daughter who becomes wife C if he knows that, if she only has a daughter, she's not going to get anything of that, so we should make Ketubah Banim Dichrin, a counter to the language, really apply to daughters also. So the answer is, K'nachal al-Shaviyu When the Rabbanu formulated the Deen of Ketubah Banim Dichrin, they formulated it to be like a Deen of Nachal. Nachal, of course, only goes to the sons and not to the daughters. So the next question is, so at least make two and have a female parallel, which is if they're all girls, and you're going to make it like Nachala. After all, how does Nachala work? If they're all girls, they divide the Nachala equally. If there's a girl among boys, so the girl gets nothing as far as Nachala goes. So then we should have it be that if, if wife A gives him daughter A 1 and 2 and 3, and wife B gives him daughter one B1, th- 2 and 3, then if wife C comes in and she gives him a daughter, that daughter should get sole possession of the k'tubah of the Mother as if they were all sons, the way it would play out. The answer is Lopfulg Rabbanon. The Rabbanon simply made a rule and it works as as a standard case of Nachalah, but they also put it only within the context of k'tubat Barim Dichrin. Now, Gvi we already saw that k'tubat Barim Dichrin is only taken from Karka. That was the context in which we first saw it. So why doesn't she collect from the Taltali? And the answer is so really, kubat Banim Dichrin is made with a bit of attention. It's sort of like Nachalah, but then again, Nachalah does involve Metaltalim. If a parent has lots of liquid assets, they do come, or lots of chattel, they do come in inheritance to the children. So it's also kind of like tuban and is, of course, only collected from Karaka. Right, so that fine balance was put into this Takana. Now, Titruf Mim Shabdi, so if it's like a Ktuba, and this is the last question in this series, if it's like a Ketubah, then she should collect from Mishu Abadim, in other words, or the kids should collect from Mishu Abadim, in other words, the wife married the guy today. A month from now, the guy, um, um, the guy sells some of the property. Um, when when the fellow uh, dies, her kids should be able to come and say, you know what, we're going to go collect some of that property as part of our Ktubah and we say, and we know that you can't do that. The answer is Yartun tnan. How does the Mishnah present it? It says that Banim Dichrin Yartun. They will inherit, not claim. In other words, it all is as a halacha of inheritance. So what we have is it's an inheritance. So it has the stringencies or the limitations of inheritance, which is that a girl can't get it if there are boys there, and that it's only stuff that was in the father's possession when he died, not stuff that had been sold in the meantime. There's no prior claim to it. There's no lien on it. On the other hand, it does not have the plus of inheritance in that it does not extend to ametaltolene. And it also does not extend to a case where this wife had only daughters and everybody else only had daughters and that those daughters get in isolation. So it really has only the the overlap areas where both Yerusha and Ktuba uh, come together, which is Karka that is available and only ba- ben ben abanim, then you have qtugat parim dikri. Okay, so the last possibility raised is Ma'ema Afagabda Laika Motardina. This takes us to a mission on a few prakim about what happens when there are several Ktubot and uh and a man dies and he's got several um several um uh, Almanot, he's married to several women and he dies and several Almanot come and claim. So one of the issues that's played with there is Motar Dinar. There has to be at least one dinar in order to call it the payment of a Ktubah. So why don't we claim that Ktubah Dichrin should happen even if as a result of dividing the property that way, all the children of A are going to get the million dollars that A's Tuba was, and all the children of B are going to get the five million dollars that B's Tuba was, etc. And at the end, there's zero left in the estate. And we, we evidently assume already, correctly, that we will not operate, but we will not put into place ktubah if that's the case. The answer is, We're welcome to Kamiyakra Nachla Doraita Lotkinu The Rabbanon did not establish, if the result of that will be that it will uproot the, the Nachla Doraita. The Nachla Doraita is that everything a man owns should go to his children. If the result of pre-dividing it based on Takana Doraita is there's nothing left to give, then in re- in effect, you're going to be erasing the, the very existence of a Nachla Doraita. The Rabbanan didn't have that in mind. Good. Now here's a story. Rapapa so Rav Papa was getting his son ready to get married at the house of Amasurah, who, by the way, was Rav Papa's father-in-law. <clears throat> and Rav Papa's son was marrying Rav Papa's, um, Rav Papa's wife's sister, right? Which was not that son's mother, All right? So now, Azil leMichta So now Rav Papa went to write the tukuba. Shama <speaking in Hebrew> Yehuda bar Yehuda bar was a student. No, fuck. He he left because he they had a lot of honor for him. They, they were, he was afraid that if he was there, out of honor for him, they were going to write an exorbitant dowry, so that our papa's son would, uh, would that our papa's family would take this girl, and um, and so Yudomah Meimor was protesting. Ata itchazile. He appeared in front of him the When they got to the door, Hil he disappeared. He didn't want to go in because he was afraid. If he went in, then out of cover for him, the Abasura would write an exorbitant dowry. Neomar Bahadoy. So our Papa said, Come on in with me. So Habanechale. So Papa saw that he didn't remember was uncomfortable. Watch how the discomfort leads to what the discomfort leads to. my So our Papa said, what's your what's your issue? A famous statement that Shmuel said to his Talmud, Rav Yehuda, Shinina, Sharpie, that was his nickname, his pet name for Rav Yehuda, don't be among those who pass an inheritance even from a bad son to a good son. In other words, don't be involved in a deal, don't be involved as a Dayan in a deal in which um, Inheritance is not going to be properly divided up, even from a bad son to a good son. Because you don't know who the grandchildren are going to be. You don't know if this bad son is going to give birth to a great man, and this good son is not going to have. To, you don't know. You follow what the Torah says. Don't mess with it. So, Bar Labarta and and so, Papa turned to You're concerned that because of what Shmuel said, and you think Kalbachomer it applies, taking it from the sons and giving it to the daughters. In other words, you're opposed to the notion of a dowry. So, but there's also a takana to Rabbanan. We're following what the Rabbanan said. him Yochai, saying, a man has to give his daughter a nice parnassus, so we want to marry her. And What we're doing is totally right. So Yudam and finally spoke up and he said to Papa, that's only true if the father of the bride is doing it uh, out of uh, a sense of, uh, of of desire and, and voluntarily. Lasuye Nami, are you allowed to force him to do it? Some Papa said I never told you to come in and help me force him. in, I just asked you to come in and be there and he's gonna sign wherever he signs over. <laughs> me coming in is like coercion. He's going to have so much fear for me and reverence for me and want to make such a great call, but he's going to write, I come in, I'm coming in with you. He's going to figure I'm, I'm part of your entourage, which I am. And he's out of honor for me. He's going to write some exorbitant amount. So it's almost like coercion. So now our Papa forced you to remember to come in. So he sat there quietly. So Abba thought, ooh, this guy must be angry. I'm not giving enough. He wrote his entire estate over, not one-tenth, his entire estate over to the girl. So then the father finally turned to him and said, you're still not talking to me. I swear by you, I left nothing for myself. So you finally spoke up and said, if it was up to me, I wouldn't have even been approved of the small amount that you would have written. In other words, I think the whole idea was bad. In other words, he totally misunderstood him. The father thought that this uh, friend of our papa was uh, was displeased with the paltry amount that he was signing. So he signed a bigger amount over. And uh, and he turned around finally and said to him, No, I, I think the whole idea of signing anything over is a mistake. If it was up to me, I would have told you not to write any of it. So I'm really to Nami so the father of the this Aba said to you. Remember, so maybe now I can change my mind and go back. And you know, now that I understand what's going on, you've already established itself. You really, I, I didn't say you should go back, and you can't go back. So that's this story. Ba of Yemar Sava Mirav Nachman. So he asked him the following question: Machrak Talabala. You have a circumstance where a woman sells her own k'tubah to her husband. Now, remember, selling a k'tubah is always an act of speculation. An act of speculation, meaning if a woman sells a k'tubah, let's say a woman wants some cash, so she sells a k'tubah to an outside guy. The outside guy is taking a shot. If the woman dies before the husband does, then the husband simply collects the the, the, the nedarunya. It's his. The fellow has lost it all, and he's not going to get a k'tubah. But if, let's say, he bought the rights to the ktubah, which is the manama time until sefet, and let's say the wife dies first, uh, sorry, the husband dies first, then this fellow comes along and he collects the ktubah. So, of course, it is all based on how old the husband is, how old the wife is, how healthy they are, how much the ktubah is, etc. So, now, let's say that a woman does something different. She sells the ktubah to her husband. Now, there there's not really such speculation because if the husband dies first, well, but he already got it in his estate. If, on the other hand, the wife dies first, he's going to inherit it anyways. So why is she selling it to her husband? Because she wants cash now, as opposed to the surety later. She certainly stands to lose. So for her, it's speculation. So now, what happens if she sells the ktubah to her husband? Does that ktubah still maintain which would, by the way, end up being something a little bit funny, in which the husband would buy the ktubah from the wife, giving her cash. He would hold the ktubah, and then at whatever point he would die... Her sons alone would inherit that tuba, and it wouldn't go to the rest of the sons. It's just a little strange because it means that with this tuba would still sort of be a tuba. So the question is, um is, is there still barim dichlin? So now, Amrali Rava, so Rava then asked on the question, he said, Why don't you just ask the question about if a wife is mocha luktuba to her husband? A wife is doing very well, and she loves her husband, and everybody's healthy, and in a moment of uh, excitement and enthusiasm, she says, I'm mocha Alright, so in such a case, why don't you ask about whether there you lose banyim dichrit? So, I'm a rava, so, so uh, sorry, so what, what did he say back to rava? Now, I was asking mocha why. Because I could argue that if she's selling it, it's because she was forced in financial need, and it was like an onus in which you could say, maybe they still get Bonim Dichrin. Right? Um, So it's almost as if she's getting beat on the head a hundred times, a hundred whips or something. Um, so in other if in a case like that she still loses Barim Dihvin, then let me buy it then. I don't have to ask a question about where she freely out of excitement and enthusiasm is Mohlik tuba certainly that would be obvious that you lose Barim Dihvin. So now Rabba turns around and gives his, his own presentation. It's clear to me that if she sells her tuba to an outside party, she has klu'ah, v'arim, right? My time, zuzan It's clear as day that if she sells her tuba to an outside party, it's because she had some great financial need, she was in dire straits, and we can't, we can't punish her children, as it were, and attach total free will to that act. Now, that's something that's going to come up in an interesting way in a few moments, about whether something done under internal onus, when you just feel pressure, nobody else is coercing you, whether that changes its status halachically, we'll see that in a bit. So Rava says that is obvious. If she's mocha, look to her husband and says, "I'm not going to make any claims," and that's clear that she's done it of her own free will. To goes out the window with everything else. My time, because she's been mocha the whole thing, including all the conditions on it. So now the one question is the middle case. Boy Rava, what if she sells her ketubah to her husband? Then what's the case? That's the one that we want to know about. Um, do we focus on the fact that she sold it? And remember, if she sold it to somebody else, then they keep on dihrin because she's doing it out of financial need. Or do we say because the recipient is the husband, then it's more peril, it's it's closer and more comparable to being mochel to her husband, which she loses. But to after Rava asked, he answered if she sells it to her husband she saw, it's like selling it to another person she keeps bonim diichrin good, and that's the whole notion behind that is that when you have even internal coercion, internal pressure to sell because of a need for money then you don't lose bonim diichrin now, meti ravidi baravin, watch this he's quoted from the Mishnah in Yevamot and if you recall, when we started studying Yevamot we saw the second half of went in and out of the case of the woman whose husband disappears, and reports come back that he's dead, and one witness comes back and says he's dead, and she marries, and after she marries, he shows up, and so she now cannot be married to either one, and there's a whole long list that she doesn't get does then she doesn't blow from either one, she doesn't get Tuba from either one, and if she dies, neither one of them is Yoresher. That's what the minister said. So now, Meita, in sholze, in yor-shin, sholze, yor-shin, ktubata. Neither of the Yoshim of the first husband or the second husband, are Yorish or Ketubah. And, and on that Mishnah we discussed, we said this in Yivamot, ktubata, You just got through saying she doesn't have a ktubah, does not have a ktubah. What is what is there to inherit in a ktuba that doesn't exist? After all, she loses any claim of ktubah and any existence of ktubah. When the second husband shows up and she loses it from both. Papa, Ktuba, banim so her papa said, You know what the Tuba mentioned there? Is Banim Dichrin. Which means that even that because she went ahead and married inappropriately, because she wasn't she hadn't obviously fully clarified that her husband was dead, and then when the husband shows up, there's no more banim Dichrin. Which proves that even though you do something out of onus, uh, nonetheless, Kuba banim Dichrin is lost. Why don't we just say she was nenas because of her own desire? Her husband's dead, and she wants to remarry. That's an internal pressure. So the answer is. To Rav answers very simply is that in the case of uh, the woman who marries, and we see several examples of this, where the woman who marries, uh, when only one witness has come forward and said that the husband died, and she didn't do a proper investigation, she goes ahead and marries, and turns out the husband's alive. She loses all sorts of things that are beyond what you would normally lose because the a knas. As a matter of fact, the Gemara says the reason that we are lenient about the level of testimony, the threshold for testimony to allow her to marry is because we're so stringent at the end of the road if it turns out to be false. And therefore, she will be very careful to check um, uh, because uh, she knows what the consequences will be if she's wrong. Good. Yati Ravim Barchanin so we was sitting in front of Rav Rabbi Elazar. He quoted Rabbi Elazar saying, in la Separate halacha: If a woman is like the case we had before, like uh, the way I described it before, she loses any claim of mizonot. The husband doesn't have to feed her. the comrade the So Rav turned around to this Talmud and said, "If you did not say this, the name of a great man, another Rabbi, in other words Rabbi Elazar." Havia I would have said back to you, if you would have said it on your own, I would have said, A man who repays good with evil, evil will never leave his house. In other words, here, she was Mochalik Tuban, and the husband turns around and says, Thank you very much. Now go feed yourself. This is a bad guy. But Rabbi Leazar said it. tanina, uh, ishto, sorry, um, ayativ rabbi, rabbi Nachman, papi. Right, they were sitting together. So he was their teacher. He was sitting. I'm sorry, he was a student. He was sitting with them. A man came whose fiancé had died. Amri lay, and so these students said to him, Zil kvar Either you take care of the burial, or you give the family the money of the ktuba, and let them take care of it. Because after all, ktuba is keneged. Sorry, kvura is keneged ktuba. Amr alahu rabichia. So turned around to them and said, Tanina, we have a Mishnah that's a bright that says, If your wife, if your fiance dies, you are not an onen, which means you can eat kudin that day, there's no availut. And if you're a coin, you don't go to the funeral. And she also, if a woman is uh, affianced and her fiance dies, she does not have to go to the funeral. She may, because there's no such deen of Tuma by Nashim. They can go to, the, to a funeral, but she doesn't have to, and she's not at her own She can eat Kodshin. Meita eno If she dies, his fiance, he does not inherit her, but may too, if he dies, govek tuvata. She collects the Right? We, we talked about whether she gets 100 and 200, or she gets the whole thing. That's the machloket coming up in, uh, in a couple of shiurim at the beginning of the fifth peric. Tama too, the only reason that there's a Ktubah here is because he died. Ha Me but if she dies, and Aktubah no there is no Ktubah there. So she has no claim of Ktuba that the that the uh, husband now has to say, Oh, in place of the Ktubah I'm going to bury her. He's no chiyuv to bury her or to pay Aktubah. So he was saying to them your your uh, alternatives that you're giving him are incorrect. He does not have to pay her ktuba, he does not have to bury her. My time. What's the reason that there is no tubah? Because I cannot apply this notion. What's the normal reading right with an almanah? That when the man dies, uh, it says that she will be uh, when she goes and marries another man, you will get the tubah. That doesn't apply here. She pre- she predeceased him. All right. So if an arusah dies, no Right? so Ravine came and he quoted Rosh Lakish from Eretz Yisrael ba- he came to Bavel and he said you know what Rosh Rav- Rav- Lakish said as if was this was big news, was big news. He said, go back to Eretz and tell them go take all your great stuff and throw it on the fly- on the plants in other words you're not telling us anything new we already had Rav Shai explaining what it was about and uh, in, in this story uh in the in the okay, after the math of this telling the story about these three students. Uh he already explained it in Babel and so now we understand. So as you can see on the DAF, we are now going to be picking up with the case of Banan Nukvan, uh which is Mishnah Yod, and we will follow that up with um with analyzing the issue of the Almanah, which is on Daf Nundal Amud Aleph, and then on Daf Nundal Amud Bet, we will finish the Parak. It's Hashem in the next podcast. Everyone should have a wonderful day.